far from being at the periphery tantra was the dominant form of religiosity in large parts of indian subcontinent for many centuries according to several scholars some of the most salient features of indian culture such as yoga puja meditation mantras and even the hindu temples originated not in the vedas or upanishads but in tantra its influence on our contemporary beliefs and practices is immeasurable then why and how did tantra become synonymous with black magic in india in today's podcast we discuss india's age of tantra and how did bhakti win over tantra hello and welcome to argumentative indians i'm thrilled to be joined by professor patan bushet on the fascinating topic of tantra So I've always been a bit curious about tantra but all I knew was that it was some sort of esoteric stream of indian religious thought that involved strange and mysterious rituals My curiosity shot up when I almost accidentally stumbled upon a Chausati yogini temple near Khajuraho in Madhya Pradesh There was this inexplicable energy about that place I don't know if it was the unique architecture or its state of being in an abandoned ruin that made me want to know more about it so many questions flooded my mind who were the people that worshiped there what did they believe in how did they actually engage in the kind of practices we associate with tantrics why did they abandon this temple and what happened to them were they persecuted or reformed the more i researched about tantra the more interested i became My biggest surprise was to learn that tantra was not some underground fringe of hinduism but at the very heart of hinduism according to several scholars some of the most salient features of indian culture such as yoga puja meditation and even the hindu temple originated not in the vedas or upanishads but in tantra its influence on our contemporary beliefs and practices is immeasurable and this makes sense when we look at our history far from being at the periphery tantra was the dominant form of religiosity in large parts of indian subcontinent for many many centuries this period is referred to as the age of tantra to know more about this intriguing time we have invited the globally renowned expert professor patan bushet he's assistant professor of religious studies in william and mary university virginia and the author of the book a genealogy of devotion bhakti tantra yoga and sufism in north india so, professor bhubish bhushet welcome to argumentative indians thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me yajur it's a, it's really a pleasure to have the chance to speak for argumentative indians on some of my work and on this indeed fascinating and often misunderstood topic of tantra So I have some uh of slides to go off of shall I, shall I put them up now? Yes, so please go ahead and enlighten us. All right. Okay. Let us begin. What is tantra and what is bhakti? how are these two major genres of hindu religiosity related to each other how are they similar how are they different 
I imagine answers immediately come to mind for many of you, but in fact, those answers depend on certain preconceptions, certain assumptions about what Tantra is and about what Bhakti is. And these understandings have been molded by particular historical contexts. The basic point then is that these are key terms for understanding Hindu tradition, Tantra and Bhakti, but these key terms have not had a consistent meaning over time. Their, their meanings have shifted over time. And these are the sorts of questions and issues I explore in my book, which Yajur mentioned, A Genealogy of Devotion, Bhakti, Tantra, Yoga, and Sufism in North India. This will be, uh, parts of this book will be the basis for much of what I will say today. And in this book, um, I argue that for most of Indian history, in fact, practices of bhakti, yoga, tantra, and asceticism have been quite tightly intertwined. And the image on the cover of the, the tangled threads is very intentional. These have, these have been kind of streams that were interrelated and interwoven together in the history of Hindu tradition. But in the early modern period in North India in particular, you see a shift in which these once tightly interwoven threads become increasingly separate, increasingly distinct. In particular, it's during the early modern period in North India in the Mughal era that India, North India's bhakti movement really gets rolling. And you see a sort of um, a rhetoric, a discourse among bhaktas in which bhakti is very intentionally distinguished from tantra and yoga and often conceived as more spiritually powerful than tantra or yoga with tantra and yoga even being unnecessary to the spiritual path. And I argue that this is something new from what happens in earlier periods of uh, Indian history. So today, what I want to focus on <coughs> uh, is kind of how we got to think about bhakti and more particularly, we'll focus on tantra today. How do we get to think about bhakti and tantra in the way we tend to today? What's the story that led us to our conceptions of them today? And when you think about bhakti, you know, for the most part, it gets translated as devotion. But this is not a devotion of cold piety or staid formal prayers and rituals so much as, as it's a devotion of emotional participatory love in an intimate personal relationship with God that gets expressed in all kinds of ways, chanting, singing, storytelling, incense, flower garlands, bright colors, bells, and puja. So the Protestant connotations of the word devotion really don't do justice to the word bhakti. They can be, that, that translation can be misleading because bhakti is not a private, individual, cerebral thing as the Protestant notion of devotion can be. Rather, it's something thoroughly social and embodied. And we might say, it might, it's overly simplistic, but we might say that bhakti in general is the mainstream religion of modern day India. So what about Tantra? Um, here in the United States, Tantra conjures images of sting and supposed seven-hour sex sessions of extended orgasms and sacred spiritual sex. 
If you search the word Tantra on Amazon, you'll get book titles like these. Tantra for erotic empowerment, the key to enriching your sexual life. Red Hot Tantra, erotic secrets for intimate soul-to-soul -soul sex and ecstatic enlightened orgasms. Urban Tantra, sacred sex for the 21st century. And of course, there's even a complete idiot's guide to tantric sex. So if this is the kind of main connotation that Tantra has in America and much of the West, um, in India, it doesn't really seem to have these connotations so much, right? It is often looked at with suspicious eyes, but not quite for the same reasons that it would be here. In India today, Tantra is usually associated not so much with sex as with black magic, blood sacrifice, and immorality. It's the realm of the occult. As Hugh Irvin has stated, in most vernacular languages in India today, the term Tantra is typically associated with a whole range of intense associations, usually relating to the darker realms of the magical, the immoral, sometimes the illegal, and the occult. David Gordon White similarly notes that the great majority of modern day Hindus overwhelmingly reject or dissemble with regard to the tantric legacy of their own traditions, generally identifying tantrikas in a modern usage with evil charlatans practicing the dark arts. So tantra and its mantras are often dismissed as sinister mumbo jumbo and hocus pocus trickery, or they are feared as secretive traditions of dark and nefarious power. Bhakti, on the other hand, usually comes off as good, wholesome, devotional religion. Now, this brings me to some of the major research questions that drove my own uh, book project. Um, how did Bhakti and Tantra in India come to be thought of in the way that they are today? That question becomes much more interesting when we note as the work of Alexei Sanderson makes quite clear that tantric religion was the dominant religious orientation of Hindu India for roughly 600 years from roughly the seventh century through the 13th century. So that means two questions arise. One, why is tantra understood in the way that it is today as primarily black magic, the occult? And two, how should we understand the historical tradition of Tantra. So I wanna focus the first part of this lecture on the question of how should we understand the historical tradition of Tantra, which is going to be quite a bit different than this image of black magic. Um, how was Tantra a mainstream medieval religious tradition? What did it look, what did it look like? I wanna focus on that to start. And then for the second part of the lecture, I wanna to try to answer this question briefly, of course, of how did Tantra come to be conceived in the way that it's often conceived in India today? So let's begin with this question of what is Tantra? Um, Tantra, Tantric religiosity, I think most fundamentally has to be connected to the genre of texts known as the Tantras. For me, this is a defining piece of um, understanding what Tantra is, is why do we call it Tantra? The only reason we can justify that title for this kind of religiosity is by connecting it to these texts that are called tantras. 
And it's scholarly practice to call this genre of text. They, they don't, there are texts called tantras, of course, but when I use the word tantras, I'm following consistent scholarly practice and also referring to texts that are called agamas and some hittas, and there are other names as well. So when I, when I use the word tantras as a, a kind of text, a kind of Hindu scripture, um, and not just Hindu, really, but a kind of Indian scripture. I'm talking about tantras, agamas, samhitas, all of these as tantras. And these texts are all interrelated in ways I'll talk about. So these are the primary liturgical, the primary ritual texts of India's medieval period. They are generally composed in Sanskrit, though not always an elite form of Sanskrit. These were composed from roughly 500 to 1200 CE. And these tantric scriptures are found not just in Hindu tradition, but in Buddhist and Jain traditions as well. What's unique about Hindu tantric scriptures, about these tantras, agamas, and samhitas? Well, they claim divine authorship. They claim to be revelation straight from the mouth of God. They are also unique in that they claim to be extra Vedic. That is, they claim to be a revelation that is in addition to and also higher than the revelation of the Vedas. So for the most part, they don't, they claim not to contradict the Vedas, but they claim to transcend them. And they are considered unique in that they offer a quicker and more powerful path to both liberation, moksha, and to powers, cities, than any other religious path. This is what they claimed. So the focus of these tantras is really on ritual. These are texts focused on ritual procedures, ritual practices, ritual techniques. What kinds of ritual techniques? Well, it's amazing how vast, how broad, how, how the variety of different ritual practices and their purposes within these tantric texts. So you have ritual techniques for achieving liberation, for achieving moksha. You have ritual techniques for achieving extraordinary powers, cities. You also have ritual techniques for accessing and, <coughs> excuse me, and employing sacred power for any number of very kind of worldly, practical, pragmatic purposes, things like healing illness, protecting someone from danger, divinizing and empowering the body, blessing or sanctifying kings and temples. So infusing a material thing with divine power. There are tantric ritual techniques for that, whether it be the consecration of a king, the bringing in of a deity's presence into a temple morti. All these things require tantric rituals or a healer who is embodying the divine in order to heal the patient from illness. For all of these ritual techniques, the sort of active ingredient, the thing that made the rituals work, that made them unique from other forms of earlier forms of Hindu ritual was tantric mantras. Tantric mantras were the crucial medium of sacred power. And I'll talk in, in just a minute more about why a tantric mantra was different from earlier forms of mantra. So the tantras also contain the details of uh, ritual procedures for puja, for worship, which include public and private daily worship, as well as the kinds of ritual worship carried out on special occasions, um, festival occasions, et cetera. And there are, there are genres of um, tantric scriptures, which are, are, are very well known, in fact, 
that contained information on secret transgressive rituals that were performed by elite practitioners in some um, minority traditions. So these especially in, in, include transgressive sexual rituals and transgressive mortuary rituals, as in having to do with death being in cremation grounds. And part of my overall argument is that both scholars and the public have given too much attention to those because they are sexy. You know, when you see this transgressive ritual, your attention is drawn to it, but that this has um, sort of misrepresented Tantra as a historical tradition. These things were there, I would never deny that, and they have an importance beyond the small number of people who, who were doing them, but only elite practitioners were doing them. They were not doing them very often. And so ultimately, when you talk about Tantra as a mainstream medieval tradition, these transgressive practices are not that fundamental to um, what was going on. Um, when you talk about Tantra broadly as a religious tradition, part of what these Tantras, these Agamas, Samhitas, and, tant and Tantras as scriptural texts, what they were able to do is integrate a bunch of different local, diverse, regional communities into a common sort of trans-regional Hindu body of ritual practices, right? So we're going to see that the growth of Tantra occurs in a period in Indian history in which state society is gradually expanding and also agrarian, the sort of agricultural arable land is expanding. So as the, the sort of state society expands, so does the land, you know, wilderness gets transformed into land that we're, is, agriculture is being performed on. And as those processes are happening, you know, tribal groups and local groups following particular goddesses and are sort of brought into what you might call a Hindu fold. And part of that process involves the Puranas, right, where the Puranas are, are sort of, um, you have Brahmins basically telling the stories of local deities and incorporating them. Oh, well, that actually, your, that story is actually a, one of the story of one of the forms of Shiva or one of the forms of Vishnu or one of the forms of the goddess. So you get these local stories brought into a pan-Indian, uh, pan-Hindu kind of umbrella. That's what's on the narrative side. The Puranas are sort of leading that textually, Brahmin-composed Puranas. But on the ritual side, it is the sort of the scriptures of the Tantras that are providing a sort of pan-Indian ritual structure, Brahminical, that all the diverse ritual practices going on in the subcontinent can come under that umbrella. If that isn't quite clear, I'll come back to that point. Um, so just to start off with a very broad definition of Tantra, I think this one from David Gordon White is useful. He calls Tantra that Asian body of beliefs and practices which working from the principle that the universe we experience is nothing other than the concrete manifestation of the divine energy or power of the Godhead that creates and maintains the universe, seeks to ritually appropriate and channel that energy within the human microcosm in creative and emancipatory ways. So if I were to boil this definition down to what I think is very characteristic of and distinctive about Tantra is Tantra is a tradition that uses ritual to appropriate or access and channel 
sacred power. So the universe conceived as sacred power, the divine conceived of as power, and then tantric ritual is ritual for accessing and then employing, using that power in any variety of ways that can be very noble, can be oriented towards liberation or helping people, but also can be nefarious. Let's keep moving. So when I talk about Tantra as a religious tradition, I like to distinguish it through uh, four core features. And these core features are initiation, diksha, the divination of the self, often through the process of what's known as nyasa, mantras, and a conception of the divine as power, in particular as shakti. So let me quickly go through each one of these. In order to access the tantra's higher truths, again, the scripture of the tantra's agamas, Samhitas, their higher truths and more powerful methods, one first had to be initiated. So Tantra was an initiatory tradition, is an initiatory tradition. Initiation Diksha qualified one for the study of the Tantric scriptures and the performance of Tantric worship. Initiation into Tantric teachings had great appeal because the Tantras offered new ritual techniques that were understood to be more efficacious in and actually entirely necessary for achieving the goals of spiritual salvation, mukti, and the acquisition of power and enjoyment, bukti. So tantric initiation was unique in that it was typically understood to itself affect salvation by wiping out the initiate's previous store of karma. So the guru would purify the initiate soul of all karmic impurities, all karmic stains, and subsequent ritual practice was meant merely to maintain and to perform the spiritual purity and spiritual potency that the initiate acquired in the initiation ritual. So the earliest tantric text that we know of is a Shaiva scripture called the Nishwasha Tattva Samhita. This was composed around 450 to 550 CE. And the central innovation, what's new, what's for the most part new about this text is that in it, liberation is gained explicitly through tantric diksha, through nirvana diksha, this particular form of initiation. So in this lengthy and important ritual, the guru who acts as a vessel of God's grace visualizes himself entering the disciple's body and using the power of tantric mantras to destroy the initiate's previous karma and purify his or her soul of all impurities. The rite of initiation was thought to eliminate most of the karmic bonds that keep one within samsara. The only thing that remained was to work out the fruits of one's action in one's present life. If you were still alive, you're still producing karma while you're alive, even if your previous karma has been burnt away. So that's why you had to do what was known as the daily ritual to keep burning off the karma that you would accrue just by living in the world, even though your previous karma had been wiped out in the initiation ritual. So the daily rites burn up all remaining karma, thereby ensuring liberation at death important thing about tantric communities is they broke initially from Brahmin orthodoxy by offering this liber liberating initiation ritual to all four varnas, and in some cases, even to women. So that was 
um, this was not typical, right, to offer shudras a path to liberation and one that was considered to be easier and more effective. The vital institutional role of the guru is presupposed in the importance of the initiation rite, because only the guru, the enlightened guru, can perform that initiation rite. The guru was understood as an enlightened, spiritually realized adept in and through whom the divine acts, who is a vessel of God and in many respects, non-different from the divine. So again, this is just core feature number one, initiation. Core feature of tantra number two, the divinization of the self. In tantra, there is a general ritual structure that involves the divinizing of the body. It is part of the praxis of all tantric traditions, whether they be Shaiva, Vaishnava, Shakta, Buddhist, or Jain. Ritual purification of the body through the symbolic destruction of the body via mantric recitation. Often there'll be a visualization of a fire sleeping through the body, incinerating your public and physical individuality and that process is followed by the creation of a divine body through the placement of mantras on one's body, that process being known as nyasa. So tantric practitioners meditate on and worship their inner cosmos and divine identity in order to internalize, visualize deities and powers as being identical to their own consciousness. This internal worship, a sort of visualization form of uh, meditation, is often followed by an external form of worship. And there is a tantric kind of saying or axiom that only a god can worship a god. Having become Shiva, one should worship Shiva. So the general ritual structure that's found in the practice of all tantric traditions looks a little something like this. And I won't read all of this, but you see there's uh, snana followed by bhuta shuddhi or deha shuddhi followed by the divinization of the body in nyasa, followed by internal worship, then followed by external worship. This is the fundamental tantric ritual structure that you find um, across traditions. You know, where the traditions differ in important ways is the specifics of their cosmology, the specific deities that are being visualized. Those are all completely different, you know, a Jain from a Buddhist, from a Vaishnava, from a Shaiva, but this basic structure, it's amazing how consistent it is across all those tantric traditions. Okay, number three as a core feature of tantra is mantras. The mantra is the fundamental religious tool or instrument of the tantric practitioner, but what's unique about the tantric mantra is that the mantra is understood as the sonic form, the sound body of a deity or an aspect of the divine. So of course you have the concept of mantras well before tantra, right? The Vedas themselves are mantra, but the Vedic conception of mantra is not that a mantra is the sound body of a deity, the sonic aspect of a deity. That conception of mantra is unique to the tantric tradition. Tantric mantras could be used for soteriological, as in trying to see, achieve salvation purposes, or non-soteriological, worldly goals. 
And Tantra was actually distinctive in that they emphasized the worldly magical goals just as much as the spiritual otherworldly goals. A lot of other traditions up to this point had sort of focused on um, the spiritual side. And Tantra, you know, still is concerned with spirituality, still is concerned with salvation, liberation, but gives almost equal emphasis to accessing this divine power in the world for just like worldly reasons. Um, so just let me give you one example on this note, right? Uh, many of you will be familiar with Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And it's interesting that at least a fifth of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras is concerned with cities, the various cities, powers that you'll acquire through yoga practice. But Patanjali is very clear that these cities are an obstacle in the spiritual path. You need to, these things are going to happen. You might get these, but don't get kind of involved in them. Don't get absorbed in them. That's going to be a problem for your spiritual development. Tantra had a very different view of the cities. They view the cities as evidence that you are becoming divine, which is the goal. The goal is to become divine because you are divine. And part of becoming divine is getting these divine powers. So it was a very positive kind of take on the cities, not considering them as obstacles. In fact, there was a distinctive form of initiation for what was called the sadaka level of initiation in which um, this allowed you to, if you took the sadaka initiation, you basically would, um, through the practice of um, intense mantra japa, um, you would uh, be pursuing cities. That was the primary goal of the sadaka initiatory path, which is something that was kind of new to have a distinctive orthodox path for the, the pursuit of cities. So again, tantras, Mantras had been around for a while in South Asian religion, but the Tantras were distinctive in conceiving mantras as ontologically identical to deities. And it was through the potency and agency of Tantric, as in non-Vedic mantras, that Tantric ritual was considered so powerful, so efficacious. Indeed, Tantric works describe their teachings as the way of mantras. This is, you know, the, another word for Tantra is the mantra marga, the path of mantras. And that's because mantras were so key to the power of Tantric ritual. And this is also connected to Tantric cosmology, right? Which is bound up with reflections on sound and language. So from one Tantric perspective, the universe itself manifests or unfolds as sound, right? Um, the absolute power of the divine gets expressed as divine sound, which manifests and resonates in all the levels of the cosmos. So there's undifferentiated pure sound, nada, which then shifts to audible sound, shabda, the word, and eventually to mantras in human language. Some tantric scriptures say that this cosmic or divine sound is the supreme seed within all human beings which allows human beings to even speak, to have words, to have language. So this leads me to um, number four of my four core features of Tantra as a historical religious tradition, and that is a conception of the divine as power. There is a certain understanding within Tantric traditions of the divine and an assumption about the cosmos itself that seems to structure all of Tantric practice. The divine seems to be conceived first and foremost as a tremendous cosmic power 
that usually, though not in all tantric traditions, but especially in the most important ones, Shaiva and Shakta tantric traditions, gets conceived of as feminine in nature and identified as Shakti. So the divine of tantric religiosity is an infinite, dynamic, amoral, not immoral, but amoral um, force that pervades the universe. It circulates through the human body, through the social body, and through the body of the cosmos at large, and is able to be harnessed for a wide variety of purposes. And this is why it's amoral. You can harness that power and use it for moral purposes or immoral purposes. For medieval Indians, divine power, shakti, sacred agency of some kind, was behind victories in battle, behind successful pregnancies, behind good harvests, as well as illnesses, droughts, untimely deaths. But this sacred agency, this divine power, wasn't usually conceived in like the abstract terms of shakti so much as it was conceived as very specific divine or semi-divine beings, divine or semi-divine forces. So shakti would then manifest as could be the supreme being, but often as lesser goddesses, as nature spirits, as malevolent demons who would cause illness, and even as the life forces within one's own body. Kundalini, for instance. So I won't go into this too much in today's talk, but here you can kind of see that the medieval Indian world was one filled with demons, ghosts, spirits, and that many of these spirits were feminine, many of these supernatural beings, mothers, yoginis, and that these beings could cause illness or other harm, and they demanded appeasement, often through impure offerings of meat, blood, alcohol, and this is where the ritual of blood sacrifice gets, you know, isn't, becomes an important part of tantric traditions. So overall, the tantric practitioner used distinctively tantric rituals and mantras to harness these powers whether they be conceived of as demons, goddesses, inner bodily energies, or as a transcendent sacred power. In all these cases, it was tantric ritual techniques that were seeking to harness cosmic power for either spiritual liberation, but just as often for worldly pragmatic reasons. So if those are four key features of tantra, the other key thing to talk about is the cosmological features of the tantric tradition, tantric cosmology. The specifics of tantric cosmology differ in the details for each tradition quite a bit, but you basically see these features in the tantric cosmos. Tantric cosmos tends to be what I call emanationist, as in energy or sound or power or consciousness emanates from a pure transcendent divine source, and then becomes less subtle, more diluted, more kind of condensed as it moves from the divine gradually to the human world of materiality. So in this universe, um, higher, more subtle, refined levels, whether of light, of sound, materiality, energy, emit, encompass, and penetrate into lower, more impure, coagulated levels of manifestation, but those levels can be reabsorbed back into the higher levels. So one way of framing the goal is to sort of, if part of the cosmic process of creation is sort of a pure one that emits out into a diverse many that is, you know, that is 
um, not as pure, then part of you might consider the tantric process one of inverting that process, you know, returning up the levels back to the pure one. So um, one example of this is in tantric revelation itself, which it's understood that the tantric revelation was revealed for the sake of suffering souls. So it comes from the mouth of God, then, you know, usually if it's a, it's, say if it's a Vaishnava tantric scripture, it comes from the mouth of Vishnu, if it's a Shaiva tantric scripture from the mouth of Shiva, but then typically it goes to minor gods hear it. And then the minor gods pass on the revelation to sages who then pass it on to ordinary human beings. The written text, the, the actual text itself being a smaller, simpler, kind of limited version of the higher revelation. So that kind of the, the example of scripture and how it proceeds from the mouth of God all the way down to human beings is sort of one example of this process of emanation from a pure source to a um, more corrupt one that you see in the tantric cosmos um, more generally. The tantric cosmos is also hierarchical. The universe consists of a hierarchy, a kind of continuum of levels of consciousness, energy, and sound from pure divine consciousness and cosmic sound all the way down to the grosser, less subtle forms of consciousness that we inhabit or even lower than us. The tantric cosmos is also what's been called an oscillating universe in that there is a movement from the one to the many with the more differentiated particular aspects of creation becoming increasingly gross and impure as they get more distant from the pure source followed by a reabsorption back into the primal undifferentiated source. Finally, um, you often see a gendered kind of sexualized dynamism built into the tantric cosmos. Um, often, though not always, this is a bipolar sexualized universe in which there is a masculine principle that manifest through the power of Shakti, the feminine principle, the goddess, and in which the dynamic interplay of these masculine and feminine principle is seen in all of manifestation. And you do see this, of course, in um, tantric art and imagery. So we have often the idea of Shiva as sort of pure, tranquil, undivided consciousness, the eternal source, and Shakti as active, diversely manifested creative energy, and in some sense, the universe itself is a product of their dynamic union and an expression of their play, even their sexual play. So overall, then, we can say that the tantric cosmos is a vibratory, pulsating cosmos that's fully pervaded by the divine and in which the human body is inherently capable of tapping into and realizing that divinity. The tantric practitioner, in other words, you might say, seeks to harness the creative power, the shakti of the divine in order to transform his or her own ultimate identity to become divine. So this leads me to the tantric body, which is important in tantric practice. The idea being that the tantric universe is homologous with the human body. The body is a sort of mirror or microcosm of the universe containing the full cosmic hierarchy of powers within it. As this quote by the a great scholar of Tantra, Andre Padu, um, would indicate. 
So if those are general features of Tantra, I just want to take a few minutes to talk about Tantra as a historical phenomenon in the medieval period. So India's Tantric age is really India's early medieval period, which you, you know, you can date roughly, these are rough dates, um, 600 to 1200. And as Gavin Flood has said, uh, the cultural, religious, and political history of India in the medieval period simply cannot be understood without Tantra. So this was a time when this early medieval period when the thought, the ritual practice, and the institutional presence of tantric traditions played a major role in the life of South Asians. So it is true that tantra first arose as an esoteric tradition, right, of limited number of initiates who were seeking either liberation or cities. But later what happens is this tantric tradition becomes deeply involved and imbricated with royal power, with kings, and with India's public temple cult. And to the political and agrarian expansion I referenced earlier that were linked to India's public temple cult. And what this process did was it made tantric ritual, tantric institutions, and tantric ideals of what sacred power, what divine power is, um, and these ideals were epitomized in the figure of the tantric yogi or the tantric guru. It made these ideas and institutions a fundamental part of mainstream Indian society during the medieval period. So during this time, tantric monastic orders and their institutions became really key players in the early medieval religious and political economy, an economy that linked together sort of lay bhaktas on one hand, with tantric yogis on the other and with kings on the other in a sort of triangular exchange of economic, socio-political, moral, and spiritual capital. When you look at the major religious communities of early medieval India, whether they were Shaiva, Buddhist, Vaishnava, or Jain, they all came to share what you might call a parallel repertoire of tantric rituals for initiation, installation of images and regular worship. And they also shared patronage relationships in which they offered basically the same powers and protections to the same royal clients. They were competing for kingly support, kingly patronage by offering the powers that tantric ritual could offer these kings, but that only the tantrika could perform. As Christian Vedemeyer has stated, those communities centered around various Shivas, Vishnas, Buddhas, and Tirthankaras in the late first millennium participated mutually in a pan-Indian religious culture, most of whose structuring assumptions were the same, and in which a variety of ritual forms were shared and developed across traditions. And this pan-Indian culture was in significant part a tantric one. Now, it is true that there was a small minority of dedicated tantric adepts who performed transgressive sexual and mortuary rituals. And these individuals did have a significance beyond their small number. But my point is that their story, the transgressive tantrika's story, is just one small piece of a tantric tradition that includes, much more importantly, the most, the biggest and most preeminent religious communities of the medieval period the Shaiva Siddhanta, the Vaishnava Pancharatra, the Buddhist Vajrayana, and their pervasive institutional networks. 
And the tantric tradition, even beyond these major traditions, also included a widespread community of tantricas who were practice, practicing things like healing, exorcism, and what I call practical magic, as in various practice, practices and rituals intended to affect this worldly health, protection, wealth, harming even of others. So between the 7th and 12th centuries, Tantra rose to prominence in South Asia as Hindu rulers increasingly embraced relationships with Tantric gurus and their Tantric communities. Tantric gurus claimed that their initiation and consecration rites, their Abhisheka rites, would endow kings with a power beyond that of their rivals and would bring them victory over their enemies, leading to long and distinguished reigns. So these tantric dikshas and abhishekas not only would infuse the king with a tantric deity's immense power, but would also offer access to a wealth of tantric mantras that could be performed by the tantric adepts to protect and benefit the king's realm, to promote a royal patron's success, to frustrate his enemies. At the same time, it's important to say that the reason, part of the reason that tantric traditions were so successful in the medieval period is that they embedded themselves within the orthodox Brahminical tradition. It was the Brahminical tradition that for centuries had sanctified and legitimated royal power in India. So what Alexei Sanderson, probably the greatest um, scholar of tantra out there has shown is that Part of tantric successions, part tantric tradition's success was that they co-opted Brahmanism. They took over many of the positions, functions, and ritual services that had previously been exclusive to Orthodox Brahmins. And these tantrikas, for the most part, at the at the elite level of like the, the tantric guru, were Brahmins. They just weren't Orthodox, sort of in the Vedic lineage Brahmins. But these tantric Brahmins were co-opting the orthodox Brahmins' position and services. So in return for the empowerment and legitimation that tantric initiation gave to a king, that king would in turn patronize the tantric guru's community, building and sponsoring the um, matas, the monasteries of these tantric monastic orders, and promoting their interests throughout the kingdom. So it's really once these tantric monastic orders are getting royal patronage from kings in a widespread way, that's really what fuels kind of tantra's institutional expansion and what makes it a mainstream tradition. You need that royal patronage and it needed to be to co-opt that Brahminical place. Now, this is interesting because um, as many of you know, tantra has often been described as a tradition that's centered on the tribal, on the indigenous, on pre-Aryan religious practices, folk traditions of shamanistic possession and healing and magic, the worship of goddesses and nature spirits and spirits of the dead. So on the one hand, Tantra gets characterized in that way, right? But if you have read scholarship on Tantra, you'll see that at the same, very same time, scholars often characterize Tantra as a Brahminical tradition, a conservative, elitist, esoteric tradition that is a scriptural one, that these are its defining sociological features. So how do you make sense of a tradition that gets characterized in these two ways? 
And I would say that the, that's one of the characteristic features of Tantra is that it is simultaneously both Brahminical and folk. It is um, a product really of a dynamic and mutually transforming encounter between on the one hand, this trans-regional Sanskritic sort of Dharmic culture that you might consider Brahminical and the encounter of that culture with a unbrahminized tribal kind of indigenous culture. And when those two come together, that's what makes Tantra. So Tantra is neither one of those, it is the combination of those. And if I had to give weight to any one of those, I actually would give it to the Brahminical side because you have indigenous tribal practices, but they don't become Tantra until they are Brahmanized within Tantric scriptures. Until they are, the, so you have all these indigenous sort of, um, which we might call tribal or folk practices. They don't, those things don't become Tantric until they get ex transformed into Tantric ritual forms that are described in Tantric text which are composed in Sanskrit. And the rituals are meant to sort of, I mean, one example I give in my book is um, that might um, explain this point is, and this is actually a point not made, not by me, but by the scholar Frederick Smith. He's written a book on um, possession traditions throughout Indian history and culture, right? And we know that possession is like, um, is very much not a Brahminical thing. Brahminical religion is very much like under control. Possession is like, you're not under control, right? You're possessed by a, a deity. So he makes a very interesting point that the whole idea of nyasa, this like divinizing your body through putting mantras on it is the Brahmanization of possession practices that were outside the Brahminical realm. So you take this sort of indigenous folk practice that's widespread and you give it a standard ritual form that kind of controls it. But who does that? Brahmins. And, and where is it articulated? In Sanskrit scriptures. So this is, Tantra is really this meeting point and this combination of the Sanskritic and the Brahminical and the folk tribal. But again, it happens on the terms of the Brahminical Sanskritic, if that makes sense. Both are transformed in the process, but sort of the, if I had to give weight to one, once again, it would be that Brahminical side. So let's see. Um, the development of tantric tradition was characterized by, to reiterate the point, the assimilation of local, non-textual, non-Brahminical traditions of practice like possession, like exorcism, like blood sacrifice into the controlled trans-regional Brahminic textualized ritual forms of tantra. So, not, so indigenous practices are just that, they don't become Tantra until they're textualized in Tantras, which means they're Brahmanized. Does that make sense? Uh, we'll come back to that if you have questions later. So uh, let's see. The other thing that I talk about is that if, if Tantra is simultaneously folk and Brahminical, it's also simultaneously elite and esoteric and popular. And how is that the case? Um, it is the case because on the one hand, the tantrika themselves 
had to be initiated. That's specialized knowledge. That's that that would if it was all if all the tantrikas were initiated experts, um, that would suggest a very sort of small tradition that didn't have a popular impact. But the fact is that these tantrikas were in widespread demand, like people were going to them. There's also evidence that lots of people were being initiated at the very base level um, into tantric traditions um, at the, in the sort of initial level of initiation. But even if that weren't the case, it was the case that kings were using tantrikas on the sort of royal level. Um, and then on the on the ground level, all kinds of people, whether for healing or for getting rain on their crops or for having successful pregnancies, for being protected from demons, they were using sort of ground level tantrikas. So tantrikas were at every level of society as service providers. And in that sense, just like not everyone's a doctor, but we still think of like biomedicine as like a pretty mainstream part of our culture, even though there aren't that many doctors. There weren't that many, you know, relative to the population, like initiated expert tantrikas, but their pres they were like service providers in a way that made tantra mainstream. And their institutions in terms of tantric matas were all over the subcontinent. So in this way, it was a popular mainstream tradition. So I want to leave this historical and this what is tantra kind of question to go to the other question for today's lecture, which is again, now that we know, have a sense of what Tantra was historically, particularly in the medieval age, then how do we get to this? How do we get to Tantra as understood as um, primarily just black magic, the occult, a kind of dangerous, sinister thing? Um, and how does this contrast with that and kind of good, wholesome, devotional religion develop? Well, the most obvious answer is one that follows the logic of what you would call post-colonial studies. And that would be that this is the result of the influence of the British and of Protestant Christian Orientalist scholars and colonists. So many of you will know that the field of post-colonial studies has sought to demonstrate that many, if not most, of the forms of Indian modernity today are deeply influenced by even a direct result of the British colonial presence. So just for example, according to post-colonial scholars, Indian understandings of science and of what constitutes proper religion were fundamentally molded by and can be traced back to British colonial attitudes, British categories, British modes of thought. So one of the changes that it's generally thought that the British brought about was the shaping of Indian conceptions of religion into a shape conforming to European enlightenment dispositions. So Europeans had, had you know, as a result of their own history, had these categories of this is proper religion and this over here is not. That's magic. That's not proper religion. And this, this argument would be that basically these ideas rub off during the British colonial period on Indians. And Orientalist characterizations of bhakti and tantra would seem to offer evidence of just this. When you look at late 19th, early 20th century Western scholars, they drew on native Christian, especially Protestant conceptions of religion as being something that's monotheistic, something that's personal, something that's faith oriented to identify bhakti first with Krishna worship, but later with the larger category of Vaishnavism. 
And in this process, they characterized bhakti religion as a kind of reformed Hinduism, an Indian instance of Christian-like monotheistic devotion to a personal god. On the other hand, however, tantric forms of Hindu tradition with their focus on power, their sometimes bloody and erotic imagery and rites served as the magical foil to bhakti religion and were quickly singled out as India's darkest, most irrational element, the extreme Orient, the most exotic aspect of the exotic Orient itself. In particular, we see this in the work of Monier Monier Williams, a 19th century British scholar of India. He wrote that bhakti, which he identified with Vaishnavism, is, quote, the only Hindu system worthy of being called a religion. And he stated furthermore that bhakti alone among Hindu religious forms possesses the essential elements of a genuine religion. For there can be no true religion without personal devotion to a personal god. When it came to Tantra, however, Monier Williams had a very different opinion. It was he who actually used the term Tantrism for the first time as a singular monolithic class. And he remarked disparagingly that Tantrism is Hinduism arrived at its last and worst stage of medieval development. He asserted that the tantras are generally mere manuals of mysticism, magic, and superstition of the worst and most silly kind. So here in Monier Williams' conception, which I think is a very typical one of the time, bhakti with its more familiar, rational, Christian-like devotional approach gets defined as religion in opposition to tantra, with its unfamiliar, unapproved perspectives and practices, which gets labeled as magic and superstition. So as this story typically goes, these Western colonial perceptions then got appropriated by Indian reformers of Hinduism, from Ramohan Roy to Bharatindu Harishchandra to Swami Vivekananda, who would raise up bhakti and Vedantic philosophy while criticizing Tantra as a corrupt tradition of magic and superstition that needed to be cleansed from Hinduism. So when we consider these sorts of historical figures and their views alongside current present day conceptions of Bhakti and Tantra, it might seem we have evidence for a rather open and shut case of Western colonial perspectives making their way into the outlooks of the Indian people. I'd like to suggest that this is in fact not the case, or at least that the situation is not at all so simple. My take, the whole take of my whole book is that post-colonial studies and that approach has, we've learned a lot from it and there's no doubt that colonialism had a huge impact on Indian culture and on the makeup even of Indian society today. This is undeniable and post-colonial studies has shown us, you know, the details of that. However, I think the kind of pendulum of post-colonial interpretations has swung a little bit too far um, to the point that now many scholars seek the answers for modern Indian perspectives only in the colonial period and fail to look back further and see continuities. And so part of my work is to do just that. So my research suggests, um, can I put my screen back up there? Oh, I think, 
I lost the screen sharing ability. You can do it. Can do it. Go ahead. Okay. This is my answer that, in fact, the origins of modern day Indian understandings of bhakti and tantra actually lie in India's early modern period, roughly 1500 to 1700, before the British had any significant presence in India. So it is the case that the British expanded upon and intensified a certain view of bhakti and tantra. But their own understanding of these traditions was in many ways drawn from pre-existing, already circulating indigenous Indian perspectives. Specifically, my argument is that the trend toward conceiving bhakti and tantra as two distinct, even opposed genres of religiosity with characteristics that in many ways mirror a sort of religion versus magic distinction, that that really first emerges in North India's bhakti movement in the early modern period. So let me kind of um, unpack that argument. That'll be the last part of today's lecture. So historically, the end of the tantric age um, really begins. I mean, I'm going to try to, I'm going to not read through all of these points. I'll let you do that on your own. I'm just going to try to, um, to summarize them in my own words as you read through them. But in short, the Tantric Age ends with the Delhi Sultanate. That's overly simplistic, but for our purposes, we can, we can frame it like that. Um, Delhi Sultanate period, 1206 to 1526. And essentially, one of my arguments is that while the British colonial period is, is important to talk about and change so much, um, sometimes in emphasizing that, we forget about how much India changed with the influx of Persianate Turks into India um, and Islam and Sufism, and really broader than either Islam or Sufism, Persian culture um, comes into India in a major way and um, with the Delhi Sultanate. And essentially, um, you know, I think it, there's a problematic kind of narrative of, of Indian history in which this is a Muslim invasion um, to identify the people who came in as first and foremost as Muslims is really to miss the larger picture. They were, that was the religious identity, but that wasn't how Indians at the time perceived them first and foremost, or even how they understood themselves first and foremost. That's a, that's a sort of projection of modern day um, kind of categories that are focused on religious identity onto the past. In fact, these were ethnically Turkish people for the most part, Afghans as well, who culturally, and this is culturally and linguistically, and this is what's most important, were Persian. And there was a very rich Persian culture that Islam was a part of. And this was a particular version of Islam, right? Because Islam, of course, originates in an Arabic context, an Arabic language. But as it moves eastward into the Persianate region, including modern day Iran, but also Afghanistan and Central Asia, then Islam is Persianized and changes. And so it's a particularly Persian form of Islam and Sufism that comes into India as part of a larger Persian culture. But the key point is that as these Persian Turks achieve military and political dominance over most of North and Central India, 
there are some temples destroyed and desecrated, and that's another topic. The, the, the reason for the destructions um, in general was not religious antagonism. It was a very political motivation because temples were sites of royal power. This was something Hindu rulers have been doing to each other for centuries. If a Hindu you know, upstart chieftain wants to take over a kingdom, the first thing he's going to do is destroy that ruler's royal temple because it's the symbol of his political power. So this was happening in India that kings were destroying each other's temples and the Persian Turks just followed that practice because that was how you delegitimated, delegitimated the ruler. So there were temples destroyed and desecrated, but once the initial conquest was over, there's no evidence that those destructions continued. In fact, both under Sultanate and Mughal rule, Hindu temples were patronized by these uh, in, in, the, in this era. But the point is that Persianate culture, the real conflict isn't Hindu versus Muslim. That's not how it was understood at the time. It's Persian culture versus Brahminical Sanskritic culture. That's the real conflict. Because for millennia in India, to express yourself in you know, literature, to express yourself in the arts, in scholarship, the language of power and sophistication was Sanskrit. That's unquestioned. And who was the who were the arbiters of Sanskrit? The Brahmins. And Brahmins were just assumed in Indian culture to be, you have to have your rule sanctified by Brahmins. Brahmins are these just crucial kind of class. The Persians who came in, they just didn't share those assumptions. Sanskrit, that's not special to us. We don't feel like, you know, a, a, a scholar, you know, a work of scholarship or um, philosophy or literature needs to be in Sanskrit for it to be good. And we also don't feel like we need to be consecrated by Brahmins to be like valid rulers. So that was the real conflict. And what you have is as Persianate culture expands militarily, politically, but also just culturally, um, there's no longer the same support. The no, there's no longer the royal patronage for tantric institutions that was there before. And so institutional tantra gradually kind of declines. Um, and you see that in, in the written comments here. So um, here's just a quick slide on Delhi Sultanate which really is a, a term, of course, referring to five different sultanate dynasties. Um, and this is the period um, when, you know, Islam, and particularly a Sufi form of Islam, becomes a major influence. And it really, in what you might call an Indo-Persian culture forms that, um, you know, is impossible to, to parse out today. Like, we know that Hindi and Urdu, for example, at the spoken common level are basically the same language. Like that's just one kind of um, indication of how Indo-Persian culture like merged together in ways that we can't like now, um, like piece apart, you know, pull it apart. It's, it's impossible. Um, so the Delhi Sultanate, um, critical time. And in the Delhi Sultanate, we have, it's not so much that Tantra completely dies, it's just that institutional public patronized Tantra goes into decline. So Tantric ritual forms and techniques persist, but often in non-Tantric contexts. So many of the rituals developed in Tantra still keep getting used, but they're not in the same context. They're in the context of Bhakti or they're in the context of Vedanta understandings. Um, at the same time, while sort of 
these major traditions like Shaiva Siddhanta and those tantric monastic orders go into decline, there are sort of less patronage dependent lineage of tantric ascetics that continue to persist and even um, become more popular. The, the primary example being the not yogis. So I would argue that the not yogis are in fact the primary public representatives of Tantra after the Delhi Sultanate. And these, uh, of course, they trace their roots back to Goraknat and Matsindranath. Um, they have roots in the Siddha tradition and in Kaula Shaivism. Um, but the Nats are really a very diverse group. They're not, um, they don't, they didn't share any particular system of practice or even uh, ideas. They had, there were certain kind of things that linked them. They had distinctive insignia. They often wore a large hooped earrings and a singi, a horn around their neck. So there was a, a sort of a visual identifier. Um, and they basically had what I call them the main representatives of tantras. They, their, their whole process was becoming divine, right? And accessing divine power. And they didn't do that so much through like the tantric rituals of the tantric age, so much as through yogic practices, particularly um, forms of, of laya yoga that are connected to kundalini yoga and also forms of hatha yoga were being used by um, the not yogis to divinize themselves, to access um, this sacred power. That is, that's a very tantric kind of perspective and that I argue um, was in key tension with both the Sufi perspective and the Bhakti perspective. So this is where um, I'm going to go through this as quickly as I can, but this is really what my book um, talks about in much more depth. Like actually there's only one chapter in my book about the tantric age. Most of my book is about the early modern period, the rise of the Bhakti movement and how it distinguishes itself from um, tantricas and yogis um, in uh, especially the Mughal period. So one thing that's key about the Delhi Sultanate is the spread of Sufism. Who are Sufis? You see, again, they emphasize a direct mystical relationship with, um, with God. Um, the model Sufi is in many ways has parallels with both with the Hindu bhakta, right? And, and Hindu ascetics and that they're both seeking to annihilate the ego self to get into a transformative intimate relationship with the divine. And they're doing that through aestheticism, meditation and passionate devotion. These are things that are, these traits really set them up in, in parallel with Hindu bhaktas who um, were doing much the same if directed toward different deities, of course. So the Sufi tradition, very, you know, I won't go into depth on this, but it expands across India during the, the centuries of Sultanate rule and becomes a major cultural force. The predominant form of Islam that influences Indian culture is a Sufi form. Um, there was, of course, a more, um, uh, which a form that's connected to the ulama that was much more conservative, especially in the urban centers. Um, but their influence on the broader culture wasn't, wasn't much at all compared to Sufisms. Um, so here you see that um, Sufis were actually interacting with the not yogis and other tantric yogis quite a lot. And they, there's lots of writing showing this. They were borrowing from each other. Sufis were taking tantric yogic techniques and melding them with their own Sufi practice. But 
my take is that mo more important than their similarities is their differences. And you can see that on this chart here. You see what the religious goals and attitudes of the not yogis. So tantric yogis were in contrast to that of Sufis. And the reason I put this up here is because one of my arguments is that North India's bhakti movement is what I call Sufi inflected. It's influenced in very subtle ways that aren't, aren't often direct by Sufi perspectives. So it's not so much that everything in bhakti doesn't have a distinctly Hindu sort of precedent. It does, but it's why those particular elements of Hindu tradition kind of become important when they do, I argue, is because they're resonating with Sufi perspectives that are becoming more and more prominent in the Indian subcontinent that have to do with the goal of divine love and experiencing that humility before God and passionate love and longing for God, conceiving God more as love than as amoral sacred power. These are pretty big distinctions. And on, on these distinctions, Sufis are far more like bhaktas and both are quite distinct from tantric yogis. So this is my point in that um, line that just came up. So this brings us to the bhakti movement of North India that occurs during the Mughal period. Again, just briefly, here's um, a map of the expansion of Mughal empire over multiple centuries, 1526 to, um, really I'm just going to the, through the end of the, the rule of Aurangzeb here is the Mughal empire I'm concerned with. But interestingly, when North India's bhakti ha movement happens is under Mughal rule. It's patronized by Mughals and, um, you know, a key part of um, the Mughal sort of administrative apparatus was Rajputs, Hindu Rajputs, um, particularly as I talk about in my book, Kachwahas from um, Rajasthan. Um, so Man Singh is one that most, most of you have heard of, really key Kachwaha who was very high up in the Mughal administration and working with Akbar. And, but there are others, Kachwahas and other Rajputs as well, who were very important and influential within the Mughal empire and were working with the imperial apparatus as they were um, patronizing and really providing the sort of financial and physical support necessary for India's Bhakti movement and North India's Bhakti movement, I should specify, to kind of explode like it did. So uh, here we go. Here are just some key features of that Bhakti movement. I won't, I'll let you just skim through these. Um, the one that I want to emphasize, all these first three are ones that other scholars have talked about. The one feature that um, my work is somewhat unique in emphasizing is this last one, that a key feature of Mughal's Bhakti movement was the expression of a devotional sensibility that was distinct from and often positioned in opposition to explicitly certain tantric and yogic paradigms of religion. And you know, I provide lots of evidence for this through the book, but since we don't have a lot of time, I just want to show you two examples. And those are, you can see them in the work of um, the poetry of both Kabir and Tulsidas. So I want to briefly talk about them. Um, I'm going to skip this, um, but this is just a slide, again, emphasizing that Sufis and Bhaktas 
of course, had important differences, but they also had a lot in common. There was a spectrum of devotional approaches to Tantra and yoga. I don't mean to say what I'm about to talk to is the only one, but I'm gonna focus on this far end of the spectrum that I have highlighted in yellow, just for purposes of time. And you do see bhakti compositions from North India's bhakti movement that criticize, marginalize, and satirize tantric yogis and tantra more broadly in bhakti manuscript sources from throughout the late 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries and found in locations stretching across North and Central India, all the way from Maharashtra in the South to Bengal and Assam in the East and to Punjab in, in Gujarat in the West. So basically what I wanna argue is if you look at the different Bhakti authors during in North India's Bhakti movement, um, from authors from many different regions, Punjab, Bengal, Malwa, Maharashtra, Rajasthan, the Gangetic Plain, that even despite all their differences in how they're expressing bhakti, they all seem to be united by a common critique of the religion of tantric yogis. And often they were caricaturing tantric yogis, but it still shows this some sort of unity that's helping to define a new bhakti identity. And again, the not yogis are the primary sort of thing that community that's being caricatured. So William Pinch has put it like this. The Bhaktas conflict with Tantrikas like the Nad Yogis was not simply an argument about style. It reflected a profound disagreement about the very nature of God and whether men could legitimately aspire to be gods. And as such, it reflected a deep disagreement about the meaning of religion itself. So again, you guys know who Kabir is. I won't belabor the point here, but he does have a number of, of songs and verses that explicitly critique um, the not yogis and tantric yogis more generally. Um, here in a mocking tone, he critiques the famous founder of the knots, Goraknath. Gorak couldn't keep his breath, though he knew some yogic tricks, power, profit, control, yes, but he couldn't go beyond. Here, Kabir stresses the inability of the Nat Yogi's tantric methods to achieve anything other than worldly goals. Again and again in his poetry, Kabir drives home the point that tantric yogis' practices get them absolutely nowhere, for without devotion to God, one remains spiritually empty-handed. He says, brother, even dressed up with your staff, earrings, patchwork cloak, and armrest, you have gone astray. Madman, give up yogic posture, asana, and breath control. Madman, give up trickery and always worship Hari. In another poem, he states, go naked if you want, put on animal skins. What does it matter till you see the inward Ram? If the union yogis seek came from roaming around in the buff, every deer in the forest would be saved. And if shaving your head spelled spiritual success, heaven would be filled with sheep. And brother, if holding back your seed earned you a place in paradise, eunuchs would be the first to arrive. Kabir says, listen, brother, without the name of Ram, who has ever won the spirit's prize? Now I want to turn again, just with, with speed in mind here, I want to finish up so we have a chance to talk about all this. I turned to Tulsidas and I've deliberately, very deliberately chosen Kabir and Tulsidas. In my book, I go through a bunch of bhakti poets who have verses um, against tantric yogis, but I choose Kabir and Tulsidas because 
it would seem they couldn't be more different, right? One is a Brahmin, one is a Shudra, um, one is, um, you know, conservative, one is socially liberal. These are very different figures, yet they were united in their critique of tantric yogis, which I think is interesting. So Tulsidas writes, without detachment, without mantric recitation, without sacrifices, yoga and fast, without asceticism, without sacrificing the body, Tulsi says, all contentment is quickly and easily obtained if you simply love the salvation granting feet of God. So not only are these other tantric and yogic modes of religious, religious practice needless, he actually says they're ineffective. In the Vinay Patrika, Tulsi states, people follow the prescriptions of the Agamas, the Tantras, reciting mantras, doing sacrifices, but they do not obtain their goal. Even in dreams, contentment does not come from the practice of yoga and cities. Only sickness and sorrow remain. Tulsi says, without trust and love in God, one wanders aimlessly, is defeated, and dies. Indeed, it's Tulsi Das who has what I think is the most striking of the Bhakti verses that show a conflict between Bhaktas and not yogis at this time. In his Kavatavali, he refers to the founder of the not yogis, saying, Gorak Jagayo Jog, Bhakti Bhagayo Log. Gorak awakened yoga and drove Bhakti away from the people. Here, Tulsi boldly proclaims that not only are tantric yogic teachings of the Nats opposed to those of bhakti, but they've actually caused bhakti to weaken among the people. So again, this is a very kind of quick, abbreviated way of showing you that bhaktas across the spectrum in Mughal India were writing against often a caricatured tantric yogi, especially the Nat yogi, as a way to define a new vision of bhakti and devotion as a sort of proper religion in contrast to magical tantra um, that is very sort of selfish and arrogant in, in comparison to the humble religion of, um, of bhakti. And I think that here you find this pre-colonial kind of evidence for a bhakti Tantra distinction that isn't exactly what we have today, but you see how it informs it in hugely important ways. So the last thing I want to say is, is I'm going to skip all this. Tantra today. Three ways to think about Tantra today. The first one is simply that Tantra it infuses Hinduism today, but it's just it's 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 sort of hidden in plain sight. Things that are tantric are everywhere. They're just not called tantric because the word tantric has come to mean black magic. So if you look at in terms of just like what ritual forms are being used in just like everyday Hinduism, they are found in the Agamas, in the Samhitas, in the Tantras. They originate during the tantric period. So as Andre Padu states, nowadays one often finds tantric elements, notions, or practices in a non-tantric context. So this is the first thing to realize that when you think about Tantra today is that it's everywhere. We just don't call it Tantric because of the work connotations that word has come to have. Number two, this is the one that's closest connected to those images we've seen, right? Many textual scholars have said, you know, Tantra is about dangerous power, impurity, black magic. 
And this is the kind of tantra that you're well aware of. You see it in movies, right? And there's TV serials that, you know, there's been a real interest in like the Agoris, for instance, who again are this kind of marginal group, yet the amount of attention because it's so sensationalist, right? Let's talk about the Agoris, you know, scary tantricas, but there really haven't been that influential of a tradition. Um, but this stuff is out there. And there's also a perception in media reports out there related to this, that it's sort of like, the unenlightened, uneducated um, rural Indians are like subject to the superstitions of tantricas. And there's even been, for example, in um, Maharashtra, you're probably aware in 2013, um, Maharashtra became the first Indian state to pass a law, the Maharashtra Prevention and Eradication of Human Sacrifice and Other Inhuman Evil and Agori Practices and Black Magic Act. Wow, that's a very lengthy act. Um, making it explicitly illegal to practice human sacrifice or to deceive, defraud, or terrorize the public by propagating so-called miracles or invoking ghosts or mantras. So there's this whole like rationalist movement and it's seen that like the people subject to Tantra are these like ignorant rural people who are superstitious. And so that's a one piece, but what that sort of take on Tantra doesn't doesn't do justice to is that there's another form of tantra which is number three this is the final one that is quite pervasive in popular culture in india today um philip lukendorf has talked about how in this kind of neoliberal consumer capitalist india that we've seen since the 90s right tantra has become more interesting to people they want the kind of quick fix that tantra can com combine but without the bad associations of tantra so you have kind of quick fix Tantra, but often in a Vaishnava context, or Madhukana has done some great work on what she calls Bazari Tantra, popular forms of orally transmitted Tantric practice that you see throughout the marketplace, molded to the ethos of consumer capitalism, in which you have Tantric ritual and yogic prescriptions, all about acquiring power to solve life's problems, to attain one's neoliberal consumer capitalist desires. She says, Tantra, for better or worse, has found a new space in the public arena and is now regularly engaged with by Indian film stars, high-powered business people, civil servants, and politicians. So again, I think these are kind of three ways to think about Tantra or three ways Tantra is thought about in India today that I just want to kind of leave you with. And with that, I will stop lecturing and we can open this up. Thank you, Professor Bhushat. I think this might be the most comprehensive and definitive lecture on Tantra out there in the public sphere so far. So thanks a lot for that. That was, that was amazing. I might have to watch the video a few more times to assimilate everything. But, he, but some things that just struck out to me is um, very interesting was you started off with talking about the expansion of agrarian uh, civilization or peoples and then uh, incorporating the various tribal groups the forest people as we call them in India into their fold and at that time you talk about the main Brahmanical orthodoxy co-opting a lot of tribal gods and practices into its fold but further down the conversation as Tantra becomes bigger and bigger you say that it was Tantra's smart move or whatever De deliberately or inadvertently to co-opt Brahmanical orthodoxy into its fold, where they say that Vedas are part of 
Tantra, but Tantras transcend the Vedas. So it's actually interesting. It's not, it's kind of like it becomes one of those things who co-opted whom ultimately. And um, because it, at some point, it seems to make a lot of sense that perhaps these were pre-Brahmanical customs in India, or, or at least in certain pop, among certain groups of India that continue and become, because the way we see these fierce goddesses in Tantra, they don't seem to fit into the whole Vedic setup. Um, so the, it seems that they do come from a different religious thought lineage and they sort of became part of it. But um, but at the same time, I wonder, like, there is, seems, to, at least when we talk about the practices, like you mentioned, involving corpses, skulls, blood, meat, ashes, even sexual fluids. Now, these are impure practices. So my question is, like, were these practices already going on among the forest people or whatever, and they became incorporated and they sort of came, made their move, sorry, came into the mainstream? Or was this like a conscious refutation of Brahmanical orthodoxy at some point where because of its exclusive nature and its tough hierarchy, there was a sort of a subtle revolution among the people where they rejected its concept of purity and this deliberately started doing everything impure. This is, I mean, there's not an easy answer. This is a, still a question that, that scholars debate with one another. Um, so I would say that um, much of the transgressive sexual rituals in particular um, that develop within Tantra um, are developed by Brahmins who are um, feeling like um, in specific secretive, that's important, ritual context, that they can break all the purity codes of Brahmanism in the most radical ways and that that will sort of um, slingshot them to liberation. You know, so here you think of people like Abhinava Gupta in the Kashmiri Shaiva tradition where you have, um, you know, th this wasn't, again, it was important this was done privately. These, these Brahmins would not have wanted people to know they were doing this, but in the context of secret rituals, there, you know, you're the most polluted of substances you're consuming. You're having sexual relations out of wedlock. So adulterous sexual relations often with, um, this is a Brahmin often having it with a, a Dalit woman, you know, and that was very deliberate to just um, that by that these sort of social obstacle, these sort of social categories and restrictions are ultimately holding you back, your mind back from fully becoming liberated. But that was a that was totally a Brahminical thing. It wasn't so it was it wasn't like non-Brahmins weren't really doing those rituals. So they they're transgressive, but they're made by Brahmins for Brahmins. However, there are parts. Um, David Gordon White's book *Kiss of the Yogini* talks about um, sort of pre-Brahminical, um, you know, more indigenous roots. Um, with yogini traditions for some of these ideas about the power of sexual fluids. Um, so it's not quite as simple as what I just said. And the part that is definitely, I feel like part of indigenous traditions um, is the blood sacrifice part. So separate from the sexual stuff, 
Um, the sexual stuff, I think, for a lot of Indians would have been would have been transgressive and wouldn't have been part of popular practice. That was happening in secret ritual context and by elite, typically high caste practitioners. However, the very idea of blood sacrifice, I don't think would have been considered transgressive to most everyday Indians. Like if you're living in rural society, goddess worship is very popular. And many of these goddesses, the idea is that um, they are giving out their life energy in order to sustain the world, right? Their Shakti is coming out into the world to sustain um, the earth itself and nature, but also human life. And in giving out that Shakti, they need to be reinvigorated, these goddesses. And how do you do that? You, you with blood, with, with blood sacrifice, right? So that becomes a fundamental part of, um, kind of Hindu religiosity at, you might say, you know, an indigenous, a folk level um, early on and, and persist to the present in a way that I don't even think it's fair to consider blood sacrifice as, as transgressive, if that makes sense. Okay, but so just to go on further with that, for example, I'll take one, I'll take one specific example. Um, menstruation there is a, in brahmanical hinduism there is this whole concept around uh, a menstruating woman being impure and for uh, in Tant in tantra like i'm just curious did they actually believe that the blood uh, the related to menstruation would actually empower them did they believe in that or was it just to piss off the brahmins like like the fact that they made uh. it such a special thing in their offering was it an overt refutation, rejection of Brahmanical orthodoxy, like doing just going the opposite way, or did they really believe they're going to extract power from that? It's a good question. I mean, part of the problem for this is like when, as a textual scholar, you know, our evidence comes from texts that are Brahminical for the most part. So we don't, it's not always easy to sort of, um, to, to isolate what the pre-tantric um, practices and beliefs were prior to them getting incorporated into tantric scriptures, which I, again, I think is as these indigenous folk or whatever you wanna call them practices and beliefs get brought into the Brahminical fold, that's, you, that's how you see them. That's when you see them as tantra. So to see their like pre-tantric form it's not always easy to find that. We can kind of imagine what that was before that. Um, but I don't necessarily think that um, these ideas about um, the power of um, menstrual blood as both something that is simultaneously has this incredible potency. This is where you children come from this, yet also sim so simultaneously potent and polluting. I don't think that was just devised as a way to say, you know, screw you to Brahmins. I think that was um, almost certainly... Um, you know, a sincerely held idea, but to from what sort of stratum of Indian culture that sort of conception of menstrual blood comes from, I, I couldn't tell you. Got you. And um, so I found the quotes that you shared from Tulsi Das and Kabir very interesting. I had not come across those quotes, but they just make perfect sense given the way we are sort of the way religiosity is introduced to us growing up in India. It's very common for like the this is just inherent i don't think anybody ever told us this but like the fact that you don't need mantras or rituals you can connect with god in your own words 
directly like this is something that is just inherent in the way we think about religion from the very beginning so when we look at the words that you just shared from kabir and all it just makes sense that they would say something like this because that is sort of we share until the present age um and it also explains something that i've been curious about for a long time that how did yoga decline if yoga is such a beneficial practice uh in terms of like body and uh, mental health fitness like you now what we realize how the huge benefits of yoga but then it's not as prevalent as it ought to be like presumably it was very prevalent back in the day in india but then why why did such a beneficial thing decline at least in urban areas and this sort of answers that if if influential people like kabir and surdas were going and denouncing yogas and yogis and their importance i can totally see why it would begin to de- start declining well i i mean i have to complicate that a little because it, it's it's specifically tantric yoga and the knots that they're critiquing so bhakti traditions were all practicing forms of yoga um but they were forms of bhakti yoga you know these were devotional forms of yoga and often they were sort of even taking and i talk about this some in the book they were taking some sort of techniques ritual techniques from the tantric tradition but employing them in kind of a bhakti context so you really see this like detailed inner visualization in many ways this is kind of a tantric thing but you see it um in lots of bhakti traditions from the bhagavata purana all the way into um you know the rustic traditions um that happen later where you're imagining you know you're in detail um krishna or yourself as um one of krishna's um you know consorts or um all these things kind of use tantric ritual technologies but in a bhakti context so i don't that's interesting that you feel like yoga has sort of declined because that's not exactly the point i'm making i mean yoga gets totally that's a whole different story of course it gets totally transformed what yoga means and there's um you know modern yoga is born in during the colonial era of course since mark singleton's written about this and lots of others but yoga i don't think really goes anywhere in this period it's just that bhakti is defining its identity and part of that new identity is you don't need to perform these intense yogic practices or tantric rituals in order to achieve liberation all you have to do is love god sing god's name um listen to the stories of god you know and and this is the heart of it and for especially like ascetic communities like um bhakti sampradayas like the gaudias and the ramanandis they were still practicing forms of of devotional yoga but i think the populace at at large you may be right was wasn't fine because yoga is time consuming right this sort of meditative what, practice yeah that's what i was thinking it got all the lazy people in his fold like me <laughs> <laughs> well let's be honest i feel like if you look around the world most of popular religion is devotional in nature it's it's the most accessible form um, it's easy you know, who well. has time for intense asceticism and meditation on a daily level um uh, Uh, absolutely let me let me get in a question from um, one of the attendees dr karen pichalas she's actually a scholar of bhakti so she might come up with a less ignorant question like mine uh, um dr pichalas can you turn on okay perfect 
Okay. Yes, you're, you're hello. Thank you for this wonderful talk, uh, Pat and Dr. Brickshet. Um, I really was going to follow up on an opening that you had had put it, slipped into your talk, which is what is the process of the textualization that authorizes bringing some of the popular practices in? Um, does this have to do with the Agamas or the Samhita? I mean, how where would you locate that, and what, if anything, can we say at this point about that textualization process? No, it's a it's a great question, and you know the funny thing is, um, I'm much more of a Bhakti scholar than a Tantra scholar, and here I am giving a talk primarily on Tantra, so. Um, this part of, of, of my book, when I get into this idea, is it's a bit speculative, though I feel like it's certainly grounded, but I think this is an area that I'll, the, the Tantra scholars, the Tantric studies folks, I would really love to see them do more work to sort of lay out how this specifically happens. In the book, I use, um, I gave one example drawing on Fred Smith's works from how um, kind of folk practices of possession likely are what became like Brahminical practices of, of Nyasa. But a more specific example I give is from the work of um, Michael Slauber, who talks about um, the Gurudaka tradition. So there are all these um, Bhuta Tantras and Gurudaka Tantras where basically um, the Tantrika in these texts is essentially a kind of a healer and, and their focus was especially healing um, snake bites. And so it seems very likely when you look at what these Garudakas, like what they're doing, what they are, it just, you know, again, I don't have, that's where the actual like detailed research needs to be done to lay this out. But it seems very clear that they must have been some sort of like indigenous healer type personality um, that had some sort of shamanic form of possession of Garudaka and was then doing healing th from it. And then you look at the Garudaka Tantras and you see that sort of figure get textualized and what they were doing this, that was probably a kind of loose orally transmitted form of like um, possession and healing get sort of codified into a Tantric ritual form um, in the, in these Tantric scriptures, the Garudaka Tantras. So I don't know if that helps, but unfortunately, I don't like get into the details of that process really any more than that. But, but I would, I hope scholars kind of do do that dirty work. <laughs> I just, That's that just reminds, a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> that just reminds me of like really famous poems from India from the 1980s when um, they would have these tantrics and shape-shifting snakes and how the tantrics uh, especially and especially the Nath tantrics, right? So they would show those skulls where they look at Goraknath uh, as their sort of founding uh, figure, and then they would they would basically have the powers to to get to um, to sort of like overpower these ship ship shifting snakes who get their divine power from Shiva and everything. So it's actually really interesting because I mean they, these were all like works of fiction. I don't think they were based on any, perhaps on some folk stories, but not definitely not on any kind of uh, um, scripture or literary literary works. But uh, in those days, these films were popular and like they sort of like created our first impressions of tantrics as these really powerful, but as you said, immoral beings who mm -hmm. can choose to be more but can choose to be immoral it's totally up to them and that sort of some of these films actually explicitly say this that you you invested so much in your uh, siddhis the powers uh, 
you did all these difficult uh, meditations and uh, yoga, yogi, yogas and all that, and you achieved all these siddhis, but yet you chose to take the wrong path. You could have used all this for a good purpose, but you chose. So they, it's interesting because religion, the way we think about it, at least in modern day, is, is inherently moral, right? When we think of God, it's almost like synonymous with good and God should always take the side of the good, of the honest and support them and always be make, I, I guess, like truth will win over evil or good forces win over evil. That's like a very basic, I guess, if we make, forget about all the rituals and practices which may come from Tantra. I think this is the biggest difference that we have from Tantric philosophy. But contemporary God is not amoral, is inherently moral. Like morality is defined by God. You're supposed to be moral because that's what God wants you to do. I agree. And again, I think this is, again, it's maybe you can't assume influence necessarily, but this is an interesting way where Islam and Bhakti line up, right? There is a supreme God who by definition is moral, is benevolent. That's a key aspect of that deity's identity, that supreme God. Whereas you're right, for the Tantrika, um, the divine is power and you access that power and maybe you use it for good, maybe you use it for evil, but it, the divine is power to be accessed and employed. Yeah. And fascinatingly, um, many of the ancient religions were ambivalent about God's morality in a similar way, not just in India, but I think even if you think about the ancient Greeks, their religion, the gods are not necessarily moral. They're just powerful. Right. And so it just sort of makes sense that well, it just supports, I don't know, this is all conjecture, but it supports uh, the view that these some of the Tantra's ideology may have pre-existed in India for a very long time when we know that in ancient times, a lot of local people would probably worship their Nagas or Yakshas for specific purposes, for specific uh, support in their life, whether it was harvest or, or uh, having a child or whatever. So those gods are not necessarily moral. You worship them, you make them happy and you get whatever you want. And to me, this is quite interesting because later on in uh, Bhakti period, the, the, I guess I, I, haven't, I, can't, I can't talk at length about Gita, but the, one of the most um, important things that we learn about Gita is that God says that you shouldn't worship all these other gods for small, small, different, different things because then you will get distracted from your path to moksha. I, I guess you, you were saying something similar about Patanjali telling people not to go get into all these other cities. But that, this is one of the things, like there is an incident in Bhagavad Purana where uh, Krishna actually tells the people of a village not to worship a Vedic god uh, who are villages afraid for good weather and all that. And he says, you should only worship Vishnu in the Vaishnava tradition. And, mm -hmm. and because they don't, then that God brings calamity on the village. And that's when Krishna as a child, he lifts up a mountain and still saves them from that calamity. So, but still saying that like, you shouldn't get distracted and go to these various gods, but you can see there's a really, there's, you can sense that there is a movement going on, trying to bring in all the people into your fold, uh, taking them away from whichever different cults or religious streams they were sort of involved in. I, I, yeah. I, I find all this really fascinating in terms of like what we can interpret from these religious scriptures in terms of this 
what was going on historically at the time, like the social forces that were at play. You also see this in the level of um, mantras, right? So in, in tantric tradition, there are all these different mantras, some of which are semantically meaningless, right? These bija seed mantras, um, but they're considered to be the forms, the sound forms, sonic forms of deities. But by the time you get to this, um, at least North India's bhakti movement, um, there is only one mantra, which is the name of God. So all these other mantras, you're not supposed to, so you see almost like um, this centralization happen where now it's just the name of God, all these other mantras that are sonic, you know, that stuff doesn't work. That's that tantric stuff, but chant the name of God and that will get you there. And, you know, this may be too simplistic, but I think one dimension of this is that the Mughal empire was arguably the most centralized state India had ever had up to that point. And so there's a mirror central, the political centralization in on the religious, you know, now just as the emperor is, uh, is to be worshiped um, in a certain sense, God too is, is like an emperor in this centralized state. Um, again, I think that's overly simplistic, but I do wonder if that new political context of centralization had some effect on the kind of centralization of God in a certain sense um, that's happening. No, and you're absolutely right. Like the mantras, the way we are sort of, at least the, in the common impression in India is that mantras, we don't think of them as ineffective. We think they're powerful, but you should not go in that direction. Like it's sort of like, oh, those are things that are really powerful, but you stay away from them. You just take God's name again and again and again. Like chanting God's name, but instead of like, and we believe, well, I don't know if we, most people believe, maybe I'm superstitious, but there is a concept that those things can be powerful, which sort of, you don't want to get involved in those powers, you know, like superstitions, like, oh, stones can have powers, but stay away from all those uh, precious stones, they might influence you in strange, weird ways, so there's like these fears now associated with them, that's what I want to point to, that there are these collective memories that how these mantras used to be powerful, and people would rely on those powers but now there are fears associated with the fear of being of the unknown kind of thing which is why the the tantra that's kind of making a comeback is is typically very quick to identify itself as white tantra they often use that that word you know so even it's mixed with kind of the new age spirituality scene in india where you have people talking about the power of mantra of kundalini yoga of you know but all kind of typically put to use for some sort of consumer capitalist desire, you know, so I can get this career or get this material thing that I want. Um, it's it's been interesting to see kind of tantra get repurposed in that way. I wonder if it actually ever disappeared because I think in India has its ways. I think everything sort of coexists. It just goes morphs into something else and like stays in these various pockets and then reemerges at other times. Uh, and, right. and I have been to temples, I don't want to get to it, but I have been to like temples where uh, tantric traditions are practiced fairly overtly. And although it might sound like superstition and all that the mantras and like just chanting of something, but I, in my personal experience, what it does is that it does create some sort of energy around it. So it's hard it doesn't make sense until you experience it. And when you experience just the rituals and having to go through all the rituals, even if you don't understand it, it does create uh, a kind of vibe and energy. And I can see why people would find that spirit, a, a spirit, spiritually moving 
and why they would have these spiritual experiences through those mantras and those rituals. It, uh, I think it's one of those things that you got to experience to be uh, to to make sense of it. But I just wanted to very quickly come on the, to the last question I had, which was that you talked about Delhi Sultanate, that how the uh, well the back royal patronage as well as the popularity of Sufi sects, as well as on the other side the rapid expansion of bhakti, uh, and both de denouncing uh, tantra kind of resulted in. Uh, Tantra sort of getting moved to the periphery of the Indian religious spectrum and also it lost royal patronage. Um, so that is well understood, but I just, I'm just curious as to before, like during Tantra's age of prevalence when it was the dominant form of religiosity. So before the Delhi Sultanate, were there still groups that were, um, that rejected Tantra and were still standing aloof, sticking with, uh, Brahmanical orthodoxy or some kind of Puranic traditions, but rejecting Tantra and denouncing it even before the Delhi Sultanate period. Certainly, yes. Um, <coughs> and particularly those um, who main, re remained within Brahmanical orthodoxy, they just said, no, Tantra is not a valid revelation. So there, there were plenty of groups that were um, opposed to these Tantric communities. Um, and again, that's, you know, that's all occurring in, that's the kind of sphere of uh, that other scholars are going to be able to answer this question a lot better than, than I am. But the short answer is, is yes, there was, there were definitely um, the Brahminical um, orthodoxy that uh, opposed these tantric communities and the new kind of newfound power that they were, they were getting. And um I think that would be the prime, the, the big difference though, is there isn't that kind of, um, there is an opposition coming from the Bhakti side earlier on. Um, so far as I'm aware, it's coming more from Orthodox Brahmanism um, because they've got their position taken from them, right? And they don't think that these tantras are valid revelation, um, but you don't see um, early on during the tantric age, so far as I'm aware, you don't see any kind of bhakti traditions critiquing tantra or critiquing tantrikas they're they're thoroughly kind of merged together okay understood well thank you that that was very enlightening i thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and i hope uh, everybody who's going to watch this video is going to find it like very enlightening there is so much lack of uh, knowledge around tantra and it has been uh, it, 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 people have sort of like going back all as you said all the way to 1200 people have been denouncing it and tarnishing it so even if we do like one drop of effort in terms of rescuing its image from how much it's been tarnished I think that goes a long way so I hope people who watch this video if you find this interesting if you thought it was informational educational do please share it among your own network uh, so that we can sort of help in dispelling a lot of misconceptions that surround uh, Tantra, which was and continues to be a great uh, school of religious and philosophical thought in India. And thanks a lot, Dr. Uh, Professor Patton Bushet. It was a pleasure to have you with us and we hope to have you with us again in future. Thank you. Thank you for having me.